Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Angola is rich in valuable resources such as oil, diamonds, and has an extensive network of waterways. According to the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, Angola is Africa's largest oil producer behind Libya and ahead of Nigeria. However, the country has struggled to fully capitalize on its natural wealth. Historical factors, including a 30-year civil war, have contributed to economic challenges and resource mismanagement. Since the end of the civil war in 2001, Angola has undergone significant transitions. It has shifted away from its communist economic model, opening its doors to new investors and relying on substantial Chinese investment to rebuild its infrastructure. Additionally, in 2017, President João Lourenço initiated an anti-corruption campaign to recover stolen public funds and improve relations with the United States. Critics, however, argue that the anti-corruption efforts have not gone far enough, and some economic reforms face resistance from entrenched bureaucracy. Despite these changes, Angola faces ongoing challenges, including the demands of the enclave of Cabinda, a region with significant oil reserves. Cabinda has seen political and armed movements advocating for secession or autonomy, requiring the government to deploy military forces and establish surveillance to maintain unity. The resolution of this conflict and tensions will greatly and positively impact Angola's economic prospect and stability, while its partnership with the United States has faced challenges in combating financial misconduct. Overall, Angola's future development hinges on its ability to navigate these complex issues and enact meaningful reforms. Angola is a fascinating country with tremendous potential, but faces great challenges. Joining me to discuss the situation in Angola are Sergio Calundongo, the coordinator of the Observatorio Politico e Social de Angola, and Carlos Rosado de Carvalho, journalist and host of the daily show Economy Without Problems on MFM Radio. They are both joining us from Luanda, Angola. Greeting, gentlemen, and welcome to Into Africa. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to interact with you in this conversation. Thank you for joining us. So how is the complex political and post-conflict dynamics affect investors in Angola today? From my side, I think that after war, I just mentioned after war, even though the war finished in 2002, we have three big challenges in Angola. One is the democratic process. As you know, that uh, you cannot be democratic just because we become a multi-partidary country, because we had elections. I think that I, I'm talking about deep democracy. The second big challenge is the economical model. You know that our economy is based on in the extractive industry. 
And historically, the country, we had the good examples about the paradox of abundance. And the third one is the reconciliation process. So, of course, that we had signed the peace agreement on 2002, but I think that reconciliation is a process. Our war uh, ending, but because there was a military victory more than the different parts of Angola decide to be together. So we tried to be together, but at the end of war was based on the fact that one of the contenders was win the war, simply. So that is, it's make more challengeable our reconciliation process because the deep cause of the war was not solved yet. The deep cause of the war was not, has not been solved yet, you say, uh, Sergio. What do you mean by the, the causes have not been resolved? It's I been think that the, 23 years since you first came, the Angolans came, first came together to Asha. I, I think there are the dynamical causes, what we are well known, but sometimes we neglect that. What was the reason why uh, after 14 years fighting against colonialism, with 75, we start up a, a civil war? I think the first one was intolerance. So we are not able to, to deal with different political perspectives in the Pacific way. We are not able to, to deal with the conflict is normal, but how we manage when the conflict set up among us. We are an inequality country. So these kind of issues, in my point of view, yeah, affect the, or influence the war. The question is, those issues were solved yet? After 20 years, I don't think not so. I think that we continue to be a country where they are difficult to dealing with the different political perspective. I think that I don't believe past peace without justice is not justice and is not peace. And it is influenced a lot the, the counts and the, the deep cause of the war. Some of them, unfortunately, still remain. Carlos, uh, an abundance, a paradox of abundance, intolerance, conflict that is normal, but that uh, run wild because the system does not allow for the diversity of thought and uh, views, inequality, peace without justice. How do you see uh, this development taking place? After all, Angola is a peaceful country now, uh, overall. Um, what's happening? I agree with Sergio. So. In political side, I agree with him. And uh, in economic side, our problem is that formally we are market economy, but in reality we are not a market economy. We have a big intervention from the state, and I think that this is the main reason that the foreign investors don't don't, don't come to to Angola. We still are non dependent economy, and big problems in foreign exchange market. And I think that this is the reason that the foreigner investors don't come to Angola, don't invest in Angola. Even you, you said that, uh, for instance, that China is investing in Angola. China is not investing in Angola. China is financing Angola. It's totally different. Of course, we know we need finance. But in, first of all, we need uh, investment, direct, foreign direct investment. And uh, I feel sad when we start to have relations with the with United States. And I think that the model that the United States want for Angola is the same of China. 
they are financing us. And what we need is direct investment. The credit lines that we are signing with the United States as we do with China, they don't work for Angola. I repeat, we need investment, direct investment. We transfer of capital, transfer of technology, transfer of know-how, of management. That's Angola needs from the United States and China. Unfortunately, we are not having this. So how do you differentiate that, Carlos? After the war, Angola had wanted help from the IMF and the World Bank. There were so many conditions. Angola was left with one option, really, is to turn to the Chinese so the Chinese can give them the type of financing they needed to rebuild the country. I visited your country recently. And in some places, uh, places like Rwanda, you see that the infrastructure boom, you see that money was put into this infrastructure, some of the roads and so on. Then now you have, of course, your rapprochement with the United States, which has been about 30 years. I think that since embassies open on both sides, you also have American companies there. You have Sun Africa that is working on solar energy to help Angola move its renewable energy program forward. You have AfriCell that so far is inching its way into the telephony market. Now they have acquired about 27% of the market. They are putting new towers for communication. Some challenge still there. You don't consider that as FDI? No. In the case of Sun Africa, is not at all FDI. Because what Sun Africa is doing is they are building a solar plant. But the risk is with the Angolan government. They are just building this solar plant. So they are the, the finances from United States. And of course, as in all the credit lines, the, the constructors are from the country who lend the money. In this case, is the, the United States and, and Sun Africa. So there is no direct investment. In the case of AfriCell, we can say, it, in this case, is direct investment. But even AfriCell is not investing too much in Angola because they are in the telecommunications sector. And in the case of the telecommunications sector, AfriCell is investing in the big cities, in the big provinces like Luanda, like Bengala, like Huila. But the kind of investment that we need they are not doing this kind of investment. I don't blame the United States. I don't blame China for this. The problem is with Angola. It's not with China. It's not with the United States. Even with China, you said that you see a lot of infrastructures here in Luanda. It's partially true. When you go in the main roads, you don't. You see that, but. If you go out of these main, main roads, we have no infrastructures in Angola. We have no infrastructures in, in Luanda. For instance, the, the kind of infrastructure, infrastructures that we need more is sanitation. And we don't have sanitation in Angola, for instance. We had a, a, a lot of, to do. And I think that in the case of China, the problem, we have a big debt with China. But the problem for Angola is not the, the level of indebtedness. The problem of Angola is what we have done with all this money from China. And what we see is that the results that we, we have with the, all this investment, 
they are not good enough for Angolan people. And that's why I am afraid that, and I hope that with the United States, we can use better the resources that we are having from, from the United States. Sergio, we hear pushback there from Carlos that Angola is not benefited from FDI. Angola is benefited from some sort of finance, particularly in the infrastructure space. On my trip, I learned that there have been some changes in law, particularly in the past year to have an Angolan investor, a partner, for you to open business in Angola for foreigners. Now, apparently, the law has changed so that you don't need, a foreign investor doesn't need an Angolan partner. You can have a fully foreign company. You can have a fully Angolan company. You can have a mixed company. Where is the big challenge? Why, after all this change in law, right, legal changes have taken place, why is it that Angola cannot still attract the kind of investors that Carlos is talking about? As you know, the World Bank has annually, or, or had annually, a study called Doing Business. The last one was in 2020. And in the last study from World Bank, Angola, between, um, I think that 190 countries, Angola was 177. So we have one of 20 poorest business environment in, in Angola. So, of course, this kind of change, this kind of laws, they are important, but they are not enough. We need a friendly business environment. And the main problem probably is the infrastructures. We, we had a lot of money from China, but we don't have roads. We don't have a lot. We, we don't have energy. We don't have water. We don't have telecommunications. So we must continue to invest in, in these fields in order to have a, a better business environment. The other problem, you know, in Angola, our ministers, they are businessmen also. And we must change that. And this is not only in Angola. In Angola and in Africa, if you want to become rich, you must be a politic. And this is not the, the case in the, the developed countries. If the politics, if they want to be businessmen, they can't go to the government. They can't be ministers. And this is a big problem for Angola. Of course, some changes in the law, for instance, now it's easy. It was very difficult to, to, to visit Angola. Now it's better because you don't need visa to come to Angola. This is an improvement. Of course, this is an improvement. But the, the main problem is the, the big intervention of the state in the, the economy, the big intervention of the ministers in the economy. We, we need to change that in order to attract foreign direct investment. Now, the, the only investment that we have in Angola is in trade. We must have agriculture, we must have industry, and we are not having this kind of investment for now. Sergio, how do you see it? I think that uh, we have to recognize that the uh, Angolan government in the narrative or the flag was, okay, let's improve our indicators in doing business. Let's improve the environment for investors. And if you pay attention in the beginning of the, in the first mandate of President uh, Jean Lorenzo, he made a lot of trip around the world, try to attract the investment. I think that uh, 
all of these things are necessary, but uh, really was not sufficient. Because I think that a part of the improvement in the law, there are another elements what are important. One is the infrastructure. The other one is the role of the law. You know that uh, we had uh, some crisis relating to the, our justice system. The people internally, but I think that also externally, that doesn't feel confident with the role of the law on this country. I think that to this circumstance, of course, yes, you can attract some kind of external investment, foreign investment. But it is often said that the devil fish in the troubled waters. So normally those investments which come here, they feeling that they have to be doing it with a strong political connection, which is not very healthy even for the country, but even for those competitors who want to work in a good environment. That is the good point in Angola. I think that we have not to neglect the efforts what was made, but we have to recognize that it's clear and sufficient on that point of view. Clear and sufficient and the devil fishing in trouble waters. We see that the Lubito Corridor has attracted a lot of attention from your partners in the West, the United States also the allies of the United States in the European Union. The United States will be financing a major project uh, in the Lubito Corridor, promoting regional interconnectivity with Angola, DRC, and Zambia, and bringing in a consortium of companies like uh, Travigura, Monte Ingil, and uh, Vector. Carlos, is that a good start? What does that mean for Angola, and what does it mean in attracting FDI? Uh, I think that uh, Lobito Corridor is very important for uh, for Angola. It's very important also for RDC and also for uh, Zambia. But, you know, the problem is that I think that the future of Africa, including Angola, of course, the future is regional integration. I give you the example of uh, SADC, Southern Community. Uh, until now, Angola is not part of free trade zone of SADC. RDC is not part of uh, uh, SADC free zone also. In these uh, three countries, only, only Zambia is in free trade zone. The problem of, the, I think, that the African countries, African governments, for integration, you, you need to give away some of your power. You, you must uh, lose some of sovereignty. And this is the problem that we have in, in Africa. Our leaders, they don't want to give away from some power for central, for, because we are not in free trade zone. And I think that the, the trade between, uh, officially, the trade between Angola and RDC is uh, only maybe $90 million. This is nothing. Most of the trade is informal. And you know, if, if both countries go to the SADC free trade zone, we will have rules to regulate the trade between uh, the two countries. That is, most of trade is informal. Because our leaders, they, they don't want to give away their power, you know. We have a lot of agreements, we learn a lot of things, but in, in practice, they don't work. We are always talking about the African free trade zone. In my view, I think that this is a wrong strategy. I think that we must concentrate it for now 
in regional integration in SEAC, Central Africa, West Africa, East Africa, and Southern Africa. In the case of Angola, we are lucky because we are in Southern Africa. It's the most developed area in Africa. And I think that our leaders, they must bet in, in SADC, the free trade zone of SADC, and Angola is not part of free trade zone of SADC. We must open our economies. We must increase the trade between our countries. And of course, I think that Lubit Corridor would promote this kind of trade. But for this, I think that it is necessary that Angola start with both hands in the free trade zone that we are not for the moment. Sergio, is Lubito Corridor a game changer? How do you see it? Of course, Lubito Corridor is a big opportunity and can fill one big gap on that zone, where, which are infrastructure or transport infrastructure. I think that from this point of view, it is, it, there are an opportunity for that. But if I can do the parallel with the computer, we have the hardware and software. So I think that uh, if we invest in Lubit Corridor, we have to ensure that we invest in hardware, but in the same time, we have to create conditions for the software because otherwise, they are the risk that we get a very modern machine as a computer, but we don't use the software or the software is too old. So when I mention software, I mention institutional rules and others' capability, which I I think that normally we neglect when we put only emphasize the infrastructure point of view. That is my question when I hear about the Lubito Corridor. The other issues what I think is very important to take into consideration is the social and environmental impact of this kind of investment and the kind of investment what the program or the project will attract. Uh, we have to uh, ensure that, uh, yeah, we made the uh, a very good and very comprehensive uh, social and uh, economical and environmental risk impact assessment when we decide to go to this kind of the projects. This project of the Lobito Corridor will create opportunities along the railroad tracks, right? Communities hopefully will get feeder roads to promote agriculture, to tap into the corridor itself beyond critical minerals. Are civil society organizations involved in helping design the bigger involvement of what we call force vive of Angola? I think one one of the issues what uh, I feeling was missing, there are certain investment which like World Bank are considered that, but not all of them is the stakeholder engagement. I think that since the beginning, it is important to have a, a very good stakeholder engagement plan. I don't think that all those investors would appear, for instance, United States government, the European Union, are talking so much about the stakeholder engagement. I don't think that they are a very good stakeholder engagement plan, which is be very necessary absolutely necessary in order to ensure that the acceptance, ensure that the people can raise their voice and the, their needs also taken account. What many people try to sell the idea that 
if the Lubit corridor will be a reality, so I hope as soon as possible, it will improve necessarily, automatically it will improve the access to this corridor for the, for the small-scale agriculture, for informal business, but not necessarily it's happening. Maybe at the top of the head of the people are just how to bring the mineral to from the Zambia and the RDC to the littoral, to the port of Lubito. So without a comprehensive stakeholder engagement plan, I think that there, there, there are serious risks that the Lubito corridor was made just in a perspective to the bring the commodities and without to bring people. There are a lot of experience in Africa where those kind of corridors is easy to circulate commodities rather than people. They expectancy, they culture, and the other issues. That is important to consider the stakeholder engagement plan. So a failed stakeholder engagement may lead to the old system where it's just about exploitation and there is no trickle-down, positive trickle-down effect for the local population from what I hear that you're saying. I hope it's not too late, though. I mean, the Observatorio, Carlos, and other force vive of Angola the corridor is still in the planning stages. They're you know, jointly discussing what it looked like. You still have time to, to ask for greater stakeholder engagement. Is it too late, Carlos? You know, uh, in, in Angola, usually, and in Africa in general, there is a lack of transparency. We don't know what will be the Lubitu corridor, how much they will invest, what kind of the projects they have to Lubitu corridor. I am a journalist, and uh, I ask the ministry, I ask the winner of the tenders, and I don't have any answer from from them. So even me, I am a journalist, I am uh, more or less informed people, and uh, I don't know nothing about uh, Lubitu Corridor. We here recently, in I think in uh, G7, President Biden talking about Lubitu Corridor, but we don't know nothing about that. If I don't know, imagine the civil society. They don't know nothing about Lubitu Corridor. And we must engage the people in this kind of, uh, of projects. And we are not doing, uh, doing so. The degree of secrecy of this kind of, of projects, this kind of investment is big in Angola. And we must change that. If we want to engage people, engage civil society, engage the economic agents, we, we must be more transparent. And we are not doing so. Is that a question of secrecy or is this a question of lack of communications? It's, it's a secrecy. We inaugurated recently the Angola International Airport. And for many years, we didn't know nothing about Angola International Airport. We inaugurated the airport. Oh, the one that we, just was inaugurated a week ago. Yes. To, uh, yes, a week ago. But if you want to go to the airport now, it's not permitted. The airport is was inaugurated. But if you go to visit, if you want to visit the airport, if you had now occasion to to be there in the inauguration or something like that, if you want to go with your friends to visit the airport, it's not permitted. And for many years, it was not permitted to go to the airport. It's usually in, in Angola, it's usually in Africa, this lack of transparency, this secrecy about the big projects. 
Uh, Sergio, secrecy, or uh, we need to improve the way government communicates about this project? Yeah, I, I want to believe that is more the lack of communication. And uh, I, I feeling that according to the always uh, the usual practice, there are a lack of recognize that the importance of open and transparent stakeholder engagement process. I think that many people, many decision makers, doesn't believe that the open, transparent stakeholding and event process is essential uh, element. Many men of them, when you talk for them, they, they look like, oh, yes, maybe it is interesting. It is a good practice. But they, did, they never think that it is essential to be effective. Because effective stakeholder engagement can enhance the environmental and social sustainability of this kind of projects. But uh, I think that uh, sometimes I don't think, Carlos, is just a question of willingness. I think sometimes the people doesn't, those who are decision make, uh, are in decision make position, according to the historical, they don't believe that it is essential. They don't believe that it is mm -hmm. essential. For me, sometimes, it's like that. Doesn't make sense to make a secret in the project with those the dimension. You need the public support, and you will not win the public support just to do propaganda or to do publicity. You need to really engage people in order to get support, to get suggestion, to get the different perspective. But I don't think that they believe it is important. It's according to the historic, they practice and their previous experience. Sounds like that uh, tradition needs to be changed, especially when it comes to major projects like this. Yeah. That will I think effect. that is a question of mindset, yes. Mindset, okay. The other issue that uh, is apparent in Angola, and this is not an Angola problem only, you go to a place like Cabinda, which for a long time sustained the economy as a, law, as a region that produced the largest amount of oil for the government. I know that it's shifted a lot over recent years. But when you go to places like Cabinda, you don't see an investment in public infrastructure to raise the level of social welfare. You know, that starts from the moment you land at Maria Mambo Cafe Airport. You don't see that. Yeah, I talk to people and they say it's similar in places like Lunda that produce a lot of diamonds. What is happening there? We get a sense like a lot of the infrastructure in as much as they exist are in Rwanda, not in the provinces. And this feeds public discontent as well. Is there a movement to change that within public policy? Sergio, start with you. Uh, if you saw Cabinda historically, there are a lot of insatisfaction in the Cabinda society about do this fact. I think that there are some change. If you see the Angola is a very centralized country. If you see our national budget, comparing what amount of money what they they put in Cabinda, it's clearly is insufficient. But compared to the other province, so they try to make start to make some. I I cannot tell you as a privilege, but some difference in in way they treat the issues. Cabinda with others, but it is clear insufficient because even if you channelize money, if the power to take decision remains centralized in Luanda, so it's difficult to ensure that the interests of the Cabinda, the people who live in Cabinda, 
you take fast. I think that th there is a lot of pressure to Angola become more decentralized. The people start to talk in the local power more than before because they realize that it is important to, to the people who are well positioning to defend the, the interests of the regions are the people who live there. And the men of the decision maker, men of decision are not sitting in Cabinda, are sitting in Rwanda. I think that is the big problem, but I feeling that there are a lot of insatisfaction. And in the dialogue in Angola about that, Cabinda is a good example that the paradox of abundance or the problem of oil economy. Carlos, uh, the problem of paradox of abundance, Lunda produce a lot of diamonds, uh, uh, Cabinda produce a lot of oil, and there is nothing to show for it. You know, in Cabinda, the biggest infrastructure is the governor's office. Everything else doesn't reflect any abundance, which is kind of interesting, right? Because the, the office of the government is a high rise and it dwarfs everything else around. You are a journalist, you study economy, the economy, policy making. Why is this lingering? Why can't Angola have a policy that is ref reflective of the needs of the people, particularly in regions that sustain the economy? First of all, I would like to clarify that maybe we are rich in diamonds, but we are not producing diamonds. You know, the diamonds are a small part of our economy. It accounts for 2% of, of our GDP, 3% of our exports. So diamonds, in fact, are not important for Angolan economy. Oil is 96% of our exports. They contribute with more than 60% for uh, state income. They contribute for 30% of our, our GDP. So diamonds, in fact, they are not important for Angola. Of course, they are important for Lunda, but for Angola as a whole, they are not important. But in, in terms of, uh, we need decentralization in, in Angola. 90, 90%, 90% of the budget is decided in Rwanda. The other 10% are in the provinces. And the, the municipalities, they manage only less than 4% of the budget. So that explains everything. And what we need in Angola, and we are fighting for, for that for many years, are the, the local elections that we don't have here in Angola. Of course, it will not be the solution for all problems that we have in Angola, but uh, the local elections will be very important in order to reduce this kind of things in, uh, in, uh, in Angola, to give power to the provinces, to give power to the municipalities that we don't have for the moment. On that note, decentralization, municipal elections, and the budget that also takes into account the feedback from the provinces seem to be the ingredients that will determine how Angola helped get itself out of some of these challenges, but including, of course, even most importantly, stakeholder engagement, the stakeholder engagement that Sergio uh, has mentioned. On this note, I'd like to thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today to help our audience understand a little bit the potential and the challenges that uh, are the lot of your country, a fascinating country, Angola. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. Mm-hmm.